Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie Weissman, the editor in chief here at Modern Retail. And this week, we have a special episode. I'm really excited. It is our annual end of the year, looking back, looking forward episode. And I am bringing my esteemed colleagues, people who are in the trenches reporting on retail who are much smarter than me to talk about everything they saw and talked about and reported on this year and what they think is going to happen in the next year. So we have Melissa Daniels, who's a senior reporter. She covers a wide range of things. They include sustainability, home goods, uh, legislation, everything in between. But um, I'm really excited to have her on. And we have Maria Monteras, who's a reporter here who covers book, big box retail, uh, CPG trends, and a lot of other things. I feel like one cool thing about working at Modern Retail is that we cover a lot of different parts of the industry so that we sort of are stretched thin, but we talk about interesting things. But Melissa, Maria, how are you guys doing? Thanks for joining. Thank you for inviting us. Hi, Kale. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So we have we have a lot to get into today. I have a lot of notes about a lot of stories that you wrote that I helped edit. But I thought I'd start out kind of broad because um, 2022 was kind of a, a weird year compared to the previous two years in terms of what was going on in the industry. So uh, like e-commerce was a really interesting one. E-commerce was a huge boom in 2020 for obvious reasons. It continued in 2021. And then things started to taper off. And there were there were a few things at play, but um, and there were a few uh, industries that were really hit because of this. But first, I thought I'd start with Melissa, because you've written a lot about the home goods industry, but I wanted to sort of back up. And can you just talk a little about what you've seen in terms of some of the the areas that we're seeing high, high demand in the previous two years and what happened this year and sort of what what were what were the undercurrents of it? Absolutely. So when you think about 2020, 2021, those areas of time when we were in lockdowns and policies were keeping people at home, there was much more working from home. We saw these big booms in areas like furniture, outdoor furniture, electronics, as people were renovating their spaces that they were staying inside in. You know, you also saw this in apparel. There were some big shifts in what people were buying, uh, workwear brands didn't fare so well, but the comfy cozy brands or brands that wanted to get into comfy cozies did really well as people were figuring out how to dress themselves for the work from home lifestyles. Now, when you fast forward to 2022, it's post-vaccinations. People are starting to return to the office, potentially. Uh, Kids are back in school. You you start to get to a point where people don't need to renovate their homes anymore. They already did all that. Um, So we started to see a plateau in that spending. That being said, uh, it's still at pretty record levels with around uh, 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 $12 billion a month. Wow. Uh, so would you say so there are there's another thing at play, which I think you can answer to because you've written a little about this, but there was there's also a little bit more, at least in the second half of the year, economic turmoil or uncertainty, a potential recession, all that different stuff. Do you did people start spending less this year or were they spending it less online or was it a mixture of both? 
Yeah, I think that's a really good way to think about it overall. Um, it's that it's not that people are hoarding their cash right now because of inflation. They're still spending money. They're just spending it on different things. Uh, you know, the fuel increases really ate up a lot of people's cash. Uh, so when you start to look at the breakdown and uh, some of the Bureau of Labor Statistics breakdowns of where people's money are going, um, you know, those fuel increases that we saw in the summer and into the fall uh, really started to change. Uh, how people were spending. I think we also saw a big boom in people spending money in physical stores. A great example of this was, um, you know, the Thanksgiving holiday weekend, Cyber Week, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, it, it, we, we saw a, a, a return to the in-person retail shopping that we saw before the pandemic. And I think that's just because people are ready to, to get out of doors and, and look at physical goods again. Got it. And so let's talk about um, certain sub-industries. You mentioned home goods. What are some of the home goods companies that you've covered? Did they make any strategic responses because the velocity had gone down in terms of the demand? Yeah, I think we saw, I mean, it, a couple of brands that come to mind are Parachute and Brooklinen. Those are two stores that really um, narrowed in on their physical retail expansion. And I think that's because, you know, the company energy and, and resources could kind of be directed into a different area after such a big e-commerce boom that they saw during the pandemic. They knew they weren't going to match those numbers again, necessarily. But what can you do? Well, you can plan for the future you can invest in other areas of your company. Uh, so we saw some big store expansions from those brands. We also saw some different DTC furniture brands uh, just start dipping their toe into the water of physical retail. Um, Floyd, which is a really fun furniture brand, launched their first pop-up in LA this year. Um, and Koyuchi, which is a really fun brand out of Northern California that does home goods, they just opened their second physical retail space as well. So what is this with with the, these physical retail strategies? Is the idea that they're going to hit customers who weren't online to begin with? Are they opening stores where they have the data and they have a lot of people who are already buying there before? What What is the actual strategy for these companies that are now focusing more on physical retail? We're seeing a lot of the latter. We're seeing a lot of companies open stores in places where they know they have online customers or folks who maybe are familiar with the brand but haven't checked it out in person. So that's how you wind up with these DTC stores clustered in touristy or high fashion areas of places like LA, San Francisco, Philadelphia, Nashville. You know, these cities almost start to get retail corridors that are popping up with DTC brands. And that's because the brands know that's where their customers are. Um, you know, there's potentially affluent uh, city dwellers and there's tourists, uh, both of which can be really uh, great target markets for, you know, things that are luxury items like home goods. Last question on this front, though, I'm sure I'll have more later on, but is it given that there has been a deceleration of sorts, is it doom and gloom for these brands? A lot of them are venture funded, which means that they need to grow at a certain rate. So are they not going to be able to grow at this certain rate, do you think? Or what's going on here? What do you think is going to happen in the year to come? Yeah, I, I think it's going to be a really interesting space to watch. I'm excited to see what happens, uh, especially when you think about the big guns. You know, Wayfair it has has yet to turn a profit. They're on a path to profitability that they've been talking about for a long time. You know, we'll see We're if all on a path to profitability. <laughs> <laughs> Who isn't on a path to profitability, yeah. Kale? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's going to be interesting to see how they kind of right-size the business after having really explosive growth for a couple of years there. Um, 
I, I think we're almost going to see uh, a narrowing of sorts. I think we're going to see brands maybe start to specify in things they do really well and and lean into that. Um, I think we're also going to see some brands on the flip side of that diversify. Uh, you know, instead of expanding products lines that you already have, is there a new area you can branch into? Uh, for example, parachute getting into living room furniture. Actually, one more question: Can you go a little bit into Wayfair because that is a fascinating company that has been around for a while. They've always grown, but they've always never turned a profit. They've, I, I feel like it's always a new kind of whiplash with them. Uh, so what, what's going on with Wayfair right now? What's the latest that you have? Yeah, the latest that we got out of their most recent earnings report um, was really what what stands out to me is this drop in customers. Uh, the number of active customers that they have is down to 23 million um, through the first nine months of the year, which is 6 million less uh, than they had through 2021 at the same time period. Um, out of those customers, about three quarters of them are, are repeat customers. So what that's saying is they've kind of found their audience, but it's not necessarily growing. It's not necessarily going to grow. Um, if they continue to uh, lose lose that audience. Um, I, I think what we're going to see with them is maybe some different strategies to win customers back. Uh, they've been out there on the marketing front. They're working with different designers and they have, you know, kind of a, a, a bundle of brands underneath them that that they have that they could do something creative with um, because they're a little more niche. You know, I'm thinking like they have, um, you know, sort of a mid-century modern line. They have a, a, a more uh, contemporary looking line. And, and those are things that they can, you know, working with influencers, home designers, uh, people in the space, they might be able to, to get some of those customers back. Got it. Got it. All right. We're going to switch gears a little bit. Maria, I want to talk with you and I want to talk about another big major industry shift and one that I think if we were talking at the start of this year, no one would have seen coming, though maybe I'm wrong. Some people are very good at predicting the future, but um, that's excess inventory. We've, you know, you cover a lot of earnings. I read a lot of earnings. um, And it seems that the big issue is that many retailers miscalculated what to buy at the start of the year, and now they're they're stuck with it. So can you just give an overall lay of the land? How, how did this happen? Who are the biggest perpetrators? What's going on here? Yeah, so this inventory problem really came in to light earlier this year and um, really the first quarter this year when um, retailers like Target and Walmart, among others, had um, expected um that their sales would be um, just as high as it would for the last two years. Um, uh, entering 2022, they came. Um, it came from the heels of two years of rapid and explosive growth for some of these retailers. And I think they really expected that growth to continue. Um, and so they ordered a lot of this goods um, only to find out that consumer spending has really shifted from discretionary items to travel and experiences. And that's partly because COVID and travel restrictions has started easing. Um, And so a lot of consumers have decided collectively to um, spend more of their discretionary budgets towards these, um, towards those categories as opposed to, you know, furniture and apparel among others. Got it. Got it. And so who were, who were some of the biggest companies that were impacted by this? Because they were some of the companies that have been doing gangbusters for the last however many years. Yeah, absolutely. So um, 
When we learned about this um, for the first time earlier this year in the first quarter, um, we found that Walmart's operating income really slid by $1.6 billion, while Target's operating income like tanked 43% year over year in the first quarter. And um, that's a stark comparison from uh, last year or two years ago where they were um, making basically um, – three-digit percentage points in sales and whatnot. Um, so really fascinating trend there. So what 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 were they doing to fix this? Are they like, it seems like there are only so many options you can do when you bought too many goods and you can't have them sell. What, what did they do? Yeah, so um, one of the most common ways that they've handled this is by rolling out really deep discounts. Um, so it started probably around... Um, the back to school season. And that discounting really hasn't ended <laughs> until, um, really until, you know, Black Friday and it's still happening now. Um, they still have that access inventory and those inventories are still coming. Um, and some of them have also canceled their orders, but obviously when the goods are now like in the sea on their way here, like you can't stop that. Um, and so a lot of what they are doing is selling these inventory to liquidators. Um, so I've interviewed a couple of liquidators this year, um, and they've told me that um, they, they're basically um, getting so much revenue from these big box retailers that, um, and they're getting so much inventory to the point that they've had to turn others down. Um, so that those are just some of the ways that they're handling this. So let's talk about the liquidators. What are they doing then with the inventory? Is it, is it all going to like TJX now? So we're going to see a bunch of last year's styles or more so than ever there? Or do they do other things with, with these goods? Um, yeah, so they have um, warehouses where they sell these goods at a discount. Um, so that's just some of the ways. Um, obviously, there's um, off-pricers like TJ Maxx and whatnot who buy these items. Um, it's it's kind of been predicted earlier this year that they would do quite well because they do tend to buy these um, excess inventory or um, these items that are already out of style. Is it getting better? Because this has been a problem now for 10, 11 months now. Uh, is it? Do you think it's going to get better? And what does it mean for the year to come? And also... Does this mean that I, I was actually talking with someone a little bit earlier and they were talking, we were talking specifically about Amazon, but I feel like Maria and actually Melissa, you'd have a good answer to this too. But like the issue, this Black Friday, these holiday sales are going to be bigger in terms of the amount of goods sold, but not in terms of revenue. And so because everybody's discounting, but they're not making more money, this is what one seller had told me. Is that what you're foreseeing? Or what do, what do you think is going to happen because of all of these discounts and all of this excess inventory in terms of how sales are going to go? Well, right now, Gap is still sitting on $3 billion worth <laughs> of products. and that's a lot. Um, that's a lot of products. And um, they're rolling out, they're still rolling out discounts. Um, uh, I guess... Um, Black Friday has now turned into, um, you know, a Black Friday week, basically an all week sort of discount situation. Um, and you're still, we're still seeing, um, retailers bottom lines tank, um, really throughout the year. Um, and so we'll see how it goes. Got it. I want to 
slightly shift gears, but it has to do with all of this miscalculation, which one of the really interesting trends this year has been the C-suite shakeup in that there have been a lot of uh, executives who have left because their companies did really poorly. And there have been a lot of new uh, titles created because these were problems never before seen. So Maria, you've covered this a little bit in a couple of different stories. Can you just give a little bit of background of what you've seen in terms of the new C-suite that, that's around today? Yeah. So earlier on this year, there were a lot of C-suite changes that happened. Um, and I think part this has partly... Um, this is partly due to um, some of the economic headwinds that these retailers are facing, um, such as, you know, excess inventory, supply chain issues, um, rising costs and whatnot. And these economic headwinds had really made it hard for these retailers to achieve the goals and the promises that they've made um, previously. Um, so, this year, for example, Old Navy CEO um, Nancy Green left the company in April, citing exactly those um, economic headwinds that I had mentioned. Um, and one of the biggest, probably C-suite changes, Mark Tritton from Bed Bath & Beyond. Um, a lot of people had really expected him to um, make a big turnaround for the company um, through his experience in private labels at Target. Um, and he was really caught in a bad timing, I believe. Um, you know, private labels take um, longer lead times than regular items. Um, and so having eight new private labels in your company had really um, given him a lot of problems. Um, and I guess later throughout the year, you see a lot of new C-suite roles. Um, you see a lot of consolidation of C-suite roles. And um, and that's partly due to the changes in um, the retailing environment. There are new um, problems that need to be solved and um, consumers have new demands that need to be answered. What are some of these uh these new problems that need to be solved. Are there any new titles that you've seen that have that have given you pause? There's a lot of tech-facing roles. And um, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of consolidation of roles. Um, there's also a lot of customer service-related roles. Target, for instance, formed a chief guest experience officer, and Petco has now has a chief customer officer position as well. Um, some of the consolidated roles are, you know, true religion combined their chief financial officer and chief operating officer into one. Um, and so for the customer experience side, I really believe that that's due to um, this omni-channel trend that has been happening in retail for a while. So consumers want to be served in different ways. And so that um, some of these in-person um, services just don't really work um, online. And that's something that retailers are trying to navigate right now. And they're doing that by creating these new roles. Would you say that there is a certain type of skill set of these executives that, you know, not necessarily that it's working, but these are the people who are getting these jobs now? Is it people who have weathered past storms? Is it people who have, you know, a lot of different knowledge, both about online and offline? What, what are you seeing in terms of what types of executives companies are seeking? Um, I think companies are seeking executives that um, are, re are really agile um, and is able to adapt quickly to this ever-changing consumer environment. Um, obviously, some of the big box retailers have kept their um, 
kept their executives. I believe Target had just reiterated how they um, are keeping their CEO for a couple of years. Um, and um, right now, executives are facing challenges that they likely have never learned in business school. Um, the old retailing playbook has been thrown out of the window. Um, and so someone who is able to adapt to these environments is something that um, I think that's a skill that a lot of these retailers are looking for. All right. And just last question. Is it only the big companies that you're seeing these types of sweeping changes are like our startups also having having difficulties with their C-suites or creating new roles? Have you seen anything along those lines? I, I know that they've hired a couple. Um, Liquid Death, for instance, hired um, they hired the person to basically uh, spearhead their distribution, the distribution side of their business. And um, I believe that is um, that's because they're growing very quickly. They're very they're growing. Um, they're growing the channels that they are in. They're no longer just a DTC um, beverage brand. Got it. All right, I'm going to bring both of you back on to talk about something that you both have written about a great deal. But I might begin. It's, it's we're, I want to talk about the economy because you know the economy is what everyone's talking about in business journalism these days. But um, but there's been a lot of issues with inflation and shrinkflation and prices going up and what that means for demand. Melissa, I'll start with you. Can you just talk about what's going on with the macro economy and how that has sort of impacted? you know, con consumer changes that, that you've reported on? Sure. So the turning point or the high water mark for a lot of this happened in the summer. That was when we saw a 9.1% uh, consumer price index increase. That was a 40-year record uh, as, as, as far as looking at what, what the increase was. And, and that's something that hit really every household. Um, you know, by October, uh, we saw energy prices up. Uh, you know, almost 18% year over year. We saw food prices up, you know, almost 11% year over year. And, and those are things that people have to spend, right? So if I have a fixed household budget, but my energy costs and my grocery bill is going up, that's going to mean I don't have as much to spend on, you know, adorable stationery and cute shoes. So if I'm a retailer who sells adorable stationery or cute shoes, I'm suddenly in a position where my customer has has fewer dollars, um, you know, that I'm competing for. I feel like for the bigger companies, they used inflation to their advantage in a slightly interesting manner. Some could say, you know, I won't have an opinion on it on air. But um, Maria, you've written a little bit about this. So can you just talk about some of the ways some of the, the big juggernauts have responded to inflation? Absolutely. So one tactic that retailers have been um, using is widely called shrinkflation, quote unquote. Um, and it's a tactic that retailers use to improve their margins without raising prices. And so a how a lot of retailers have been applying shrinkflation is by reducing their um, package sizes um, and without raising prices, of course. Um, so a really popular example is Pepsi. Um, they used to have this, um, you know, 32-ounce bottle of, I believe it was Gatorade, um, and they marketed it as a, um, I believe it was a an easier-to-hold version. Oh, my reality. poor hand with a thick bottle. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but in reality, for the same price, consumers are getting a 24-ounce bottle instead of the 32 ones that 
they usually have. Um, and another example is General Mills reduced their family size cereal box by 10%. Um, so basically from uh, 19 ounces to just about 18 ounces. Um, and retailers see this as, um, as a lever basically to improve their margins and um, Pepsi and Coca-Cola two of the biggest um, beverage companies have publicly said that this is something that they will continue to do in order to um, improve their numbers. And it did. It genuinely did improve their numbers, right? They, they pretty much said our profits have increased because we've been selling more smaller goods, right? That's true. And so much so that they actually um, increased their um, outlook while some of these companies have been, um, you know, dialing down their outlooks for the rest of the year. They hiked it up. Uh, Coca-Cola, for instance, um, now expects their fiscal year revenue to grow about like 14 to 15 percent. Um, that's uh, from 12 to 30 percent previously. And Pepsi did the same thing. It now expects its revenue to grow about 12 percent. Wow. Um, so that's what's happening with the bigger companies. But I want to sort of shift gears and with, with the inflation talk. And Melissa, you kind of hit on this before, but have it's have in if either of you have an answer to this i'm just fascinated to know did inflation hit smaller retailers and brands more than it hit bigger retailers and brands would you say or did it just depend on the category they were in well i want to answer your question but i also just want to comment on what maria said about this being successful for some companies and i just have to say i'd love to be a fly on the wall in front of the pollyanna marketer who said Yes, you're paying the same for a smaller bottle, but it's easier to hold. Um, you know, I have, <laughs> I have to say that there's some really creative minds out there who are figuring it out, and I would love to chat with them on on how that uh, mental gymnastics works. Uh, but but on the company size point. You know, a lot of companies I talked to this year, it was really more about price point and demographic than it is you know, breadth of inventory, I would say. So if I'm a really high-end company, if I'm selling $300 linens and my customer has, you know, household income of $250,000 or above, the 17%, 18% increase in energy costs might bother them, but it's not going to stop them from buying something that they want. Um, so I, I think some of the companies that are more in the luxury space, they didn't have to tailor their strategies as much as the companies that serve, you know, the rest of us. Um, I, I, I think we sort of saw this, um, you know, I think Costco's response was a really good response. There was some murmurings of, are they going to raise their price, uh, raise their membership price? Um, they, yeah. And they didn't raise even their hot dog price, right? And they like that was a big thing. didn't even raise their hot dog price because you know what? You don't want to mess with something people love and people love... <laughs> Uh, a dollar fifty hot dog combo. So you know, if you you mess with that, I, th I think you're starting to mess with people's traditions and comfort levels, and that's a great way to lose a customer. Uh, <laughs> but but I think when we're looking at you know them being responsive to what households were going through, that was a really smart move because if all of a sudden that's going to go up twenty dollars for the membership, you know, and, and I'm looking at my budget and say, gosh, do I really want to spend an, an extra you know eighty dollars this month to renew my Costco membership? Well, maybe I don't. Uh, maybe this isn't the time and I'll come back again later. So I, I think it kind of is almost more looking at the demographic of your customer than, than you know, 
what you're selling in some ways. Well, let's keep talking about the customer because you've done some interesting reporting, Melissa, on just how consumer uh, spending has shifted. So that's especially interesting with buy now, pay later, which is just a a fancy term for layaway, Um, uh, but with like, you know, a tech stack or something like that. So what like what has been the big shift with buy now, pay later this year? Because it's been a a banner year for that space, right? Yeah, we've seen, uh, you know, adoption just kind of spread like wildfire. It's really being led by Gen Z as well as millennial shoppers. Um, You know, this is for those of us who shop on our phones, who, you know, the advent of one-click shopping and having payment systems connected to our phones and our browsers very seamlessly makes it very easy for us to spend our money. And if you have a buy now, pay later account, it has sort of that convenience, but also allows you to split the payments up for certain terms, often interest-free or fee-free. Sounds great, right? Uh, well, it sounds great if you know how to budget. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a, if you know yeah. how to budget. <laughs> and unfortunately, financial literacy isn't something that um, you know we teach in public schools in this country. <laughs> so I think you wind up with situations where people can get in over their heads super easily. And when, when I've talked to companies like a firm like Klarna, like startups in the space, you know, they, they have a ton of ways that they try to safeguard against this, right? They say, well, you can only buy now, pay later X amount of dollars. We're not going to let you go above X limit. You know, a a great example was a a firm's new partnership with Expedia this year that's capped at $2,000. So you can put your trip on a financing plan, uh, but it can't be, you know, a $50,000 honeymoon across the Mediterranean. Um, So we, we are sort of seeing companies be responsive to this to sort of try to prevent any, any, you know, young people from getting in over their heads or people of any age, frankly, um, and I think what we're gonna what we're gonna see with this space is a lot of um, just sort of diversification. I think we're gonna see it in different verticals. I think we're gonna see it also marketed towards older consumers and consumers with more disposable income. So while it's been marketed and and offered as a way for hey you can make this thing you can't afford right now uh, more palatable for your budget in the near term, I think we're gonna see some companies figure out how to tap the existing credit that folks have, uh, the existing savings that people have, and really kind of go for higher ticket purchases with higher income consumers. We're running out of time, but I want to get through this last bullet point just because I think it's fascinating, um, which is sustainability. That's a big thing that we've all written about a a great deal. Um, And it used to be a buzzword because it's about making promises that, you know, sometimes don't mean what they what consumers think they mean, I guess you could say. But this year, it seemed like a lot of different uh, a lot of different brands have made pledges. A lot of companies have changed their organizational structure to to try and be more sustainable in various ways. Melissa, I know you've covered this a little bit. Can you just give a little bit of backdrop, a little bit of table dressing about what you've seen in terms of sustainability with some of the major players this year? Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen it become more than ever a marketing and PR you know, lens that that companies are starting to, to put their products through. Uh, there's a lot of people out there who want to buy products that are better for the environment. I think we all have a certain degree of personal guilt or fear about the planet, um, you know, just because we live here, right? So I, I think companies are responding to that in bigger ways, uh, just from a consumer mindset. Behind the scenes and on the wonky side, uh, you know, we have the markets and the investors who are also 
also looking for companies to be more eco-friendly and sustainable. And that's all throughout their supply chain. So what we're hearing is that the SEC, um, you know, following some cues from regulators in Europe, that there, that we might see new regulations that public companies have to follow as far as what they have to say that their emissions are, what their supply chain sustainability looks like, um, and, and making sure that, you know, they're not having any egregious abuses in how their products are being manufactured or processed. And we could talk forever about that. Uh, but the, the the short story there I see is that it no longer pays to not worry about sustainability. Like if you want to be a brand who wants to really go forward in the future, especially if you're intent on capturing any dollars from Gen Z or millennial consumers, this is something that you're going to have to think about in one way, shape or form. It seems like startups have been leading the the pack with in terms of sustainability when they they usually have a code of a code of ethics or something like that. They talk about their supply chain more transparently. Um, but Maria, as someone who writes a lot about big box retailers, have you seen any conversation about sustainability in their earnings or anything like that? Are they are they making strides? Or if Melissa, you have an answer too. But I, Maria, you often cover the bigger guys. So any thoughts on that? Um, I think they're mostly doing. Um, they're mostly applying that through their stores. Um, Target has been trying to do this for years. Um, recent, uh, I think over the last two years, they've added um, more um, electric vehicle chargers. Um, and I believe they're also trying to make their stores more um, more environmentally friendly. Got it. And Melissa, one thing that you've looked at, and you sort of mentioned this earlier, but you mentioned deal flow from investors. Are there any areas in the sustainability front that are that are getting you know getting you know more money do you like i feel like there are some back end areas like reusable boxes that kind of stuff can you talk a little about that that area of, of things absolutely yeah i think the packaging and sort of back end of how a company processes and moves its products is an area where there's a ton of advancement on the sustainability front. So we're all used to having a ton of boxes in our homes and piling up in our recycling uh, bins after our online shopping binges, right? Well, what if you didn't have to do that? And there's a lot of startups and investors who want to tackle that space. The problem is consumers don't know how to recycle. <laughs> we're not we're already not great at recycling partly because our systems don't allow for it and partly because uh people sometimes don't know what's recyclable and, and what's not. Um so if we're going to introduce a new kind of reusable box say that you have to drop off at the mailbox to return or that someone is going to pick up on your doorstep. That's a new consumer behavior that you have to introduce. So a lot of these companies are are are, are sort of experimenting with what they can get consumers to do and what's the path of least resistance to make sure that a packaging product that arrives at someone's house can get reused and put back into the system. And there's a lot of interesting strategies out there and, and some really uh, smart and savvy folks trying to figure it out. Uh, but it's an uphill climb. I mean, it's not going to happen overnight. And there are folks out there who think that it's not really going to change until some of the big box guys uh, really get into it and, and, and start to shift their practices in order to sort of be the bigger wave. Um, I think we're also going to see some changes like 
like that when you look at the warehouse and logistics space. Uh, we hear a lot of companies saying we only use electric vehicles in our fleet, say, for example, things like that. And, um, you know, what kind of bins you're using in your warehouse even. Those are sort of some of the behind the scenes changes that companies are going to be making in order for them to be able to say, hey, we reduced emissions by X. All right. Well, we've hit on a lot and I want to leave it, leave you two with uh, a question. I'm going to put you guys on the spot and I apologize for this, but uh, I'll start with you, Maria. Do you have any, any big predictions or even just themes that you're most excited about covering in 2023? I have been covering this to some extent in 2022, but I think this is something that will continue, which is the localization trend. Um, I think a lot of retailers have been um, taking a page out of the playbook of neighborhood stores, basically. Um, and in doing so, they're considering the communities that they're in, um, not necessarily just copy and pasting the same stores in uh, different cities. Um, they're considering the lifestyle that they're in, uh, that the lifestyle of the people that live there are um, following, um, and some of the needs of the communities. You see stores like Academy Sports and Outdoors um, considering um, the weather conditions of the stores that they're in. So in northern places that might be colder, they have more um, apparel goods that are more suited for that weather, while in hotter climate um, areas, they have more outdoorsy stuff and um, items that are more suited to that. Um, So yeah. So localization will be big in 2023. All right, Melissa, what do you think is on the horizon for the next year? Oh man, Uh, there's two areas that I think I'm going to be looking at really carefully. The first was what we just talked about with sustainability and some of the practices and solutions that companies are taking up in order to be uh, less wasteful in how they make products and, and, you know, try to cut down on the amount of stuff that ends up in our landfills. Uh, And the other area I'm really interested in is consumer spending and debt. You know, this fall, uh, we saw 15% year over year increase in the number of credit card balances that people have. And, you know, that 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 spells that people are taking some really creative measures in order to make their household budgets work. And I'm interested to see how that plays out, um, you know, even as inflation kind of plateaus, you know, how, how, how folks continue to balance that and how retailers respond, um, you know, in a t- at a time when people may not be uh, able to spend the way they once did. Got it. Well, Maria, Melissa, this has been an amazing conversation. Thanks for joining today. Thank you, Kale. This was great. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week. Bye.